Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. This future-gazing series of podcasts will examine an assortment of speculative scenarios, what-if conjectures and provocative prophecies. Some will be more likely to come true than others, but thinking about possible futures can help us understand the present and the various paths along which future events might unfold. Today we are asking, what if 50% of CEOs were women? Diversity in senior leadership leads to better business results, leads to more innovation, leads to more successful companies. And what if drones ruled the waves? The reason that drones are so useful, especially in the open ocean, is because they don't require any humans to operate them. Let's start by transporting you, the listener, to the year 2069, nearly a century after Catherine Graham became the first female chief executive of a listed American company. In our imagined future, this is the year that business reaches a milestone, with half of global CEOs being women. To explain what this might mean and how we might get there, I'm joined by Sasha Nauter, our finance correspondent. Hello, Sasha. Hi. So what's the current state of play? How many CEOs at large companies at the moment are women? Whereas almost half the world's workforce is made up of women, CEOs, you're looking at more like 3%-ish worldwide. Uh, In places like Britain, it's a little bit higher, closer to to 6%. But really, that's just about what you're looking at. So a very small percentage. Okay, so there's a long way to go. Now, your imagined scenario has us arriving at CEO equality in 2069. So why did you choose that date? Well, I started, to be fair, with 100 years from where we are today. But most people who I interviewed were too depressed by that prospect. When I asked them sort of do you think it will happen in your lifetime? Most people, and here you're talking about people in sort of midlife who have started to reach um, senior leadership positions, said, I think in my children's lifetime. So that's where I sort of got to, okay, let's split the difference. 50 years from now feels, you know, a little bit more optimistic, but not completely unfeasible. Okay, so what's the, the underlying reason why there are fewer CEOs than men? Is it just sexism? No, it's not. I mean, sexism plays a role. And I should point out straight away that it's not just conscious sexism. It's largely unconscious. And it's not just by men against women. It's also by women against women. But it's more than that. I mean, the most obvious thing is the so-called leaking pipeline. But this is the talent pipeline that carries people from the, the beginning of their careers to, to potentially senior management position. And women are falling out of that pipeline for one reason or another. Exactly. And it it can have to do with childcare and children and an unflexible uh, workforce. But it can also have to do with things like access to the types of positions that would get you to the top and not being as open to, to women and to men. So what sorts of measures are needed to help fill the pipeline in industries where there aren't so many women and to help them get to the top in industries where there are? So on the first, I'd say start early with introducing girls to subjects like maths and sciences and ensuring that they leave school with at least the same confidence in those skills. I think that will increase the number of girls and young women who study such subjects. I think on the second, on progression, that's actually the harder one in many ways. But there is a lot you can do to at least help women who have young children um, not drop out of the workforce and crucially not pass on important jobs that could help them progress, which you often see now. From an employer's point of view, of course, flexibility. I know it's an overused phrase, but it really does matter being able to say, you know, you can do your work from home, you can work part time, you can do a job share. The third I would mention from an employer's point of view is the so-called hot jobs, you know, the types of jobs that we know can act as a trampoline to the CEO jobs. 
Previous studies have shown that 90% of CEOs have come into the CEO job from those kind of jobs. And we know that women are underrepresented in those jobs. So that seems like a really obvious sort of thing to focus on for an employer. In 2017, the World Economic Forum calculated that it would take 217 years to close the gender gap, even though women made up 47% of the global workforce. Today, 7% of government leaders, 15% of board members, and around 3% of chief executives are female. Of America's Fortune 500 companies, 23 are led by women. In Britain, the leaders of the FTSE 100 include eight men named David, but only seven companies in total led by women. Well, in your scenario, you imagine that at the Davos meeting in January 2019, so the next one that's that's happening, there is this commitment by business leaders in the wake of Me Too and so forth to do something about diversity in business and in particular this 50-50 pledge. And so they set themselves the goal of 50 years, which is why you get to 2069 as, as when it happens. So they just get there the final year. So that's the sort of optimistic view of, of how it might play out. But you also consider some of the pushback that this sort of initiative might encounter. So what might that be? Well, one of the things I imagine, and actually this is not that hard to imagine because you can see it starting to happen in response to the Me Too follow-up, is quite nervous employers introducing rules like don't stare at your colleague for too long ask permission before you have any form of physical contact, never have more than two drinks on a on a social occasion. Often well intended, but you could see what's happening now spiral out of control a little bit. And that in itself leading to a backlash and quite a toxic environment. So you've talked in broad terms about the sorts of policy changes that we need to see from governments and companies. But what sorts of stepping stones might we see on the way to equality if it's going to happen in the next 50 years? This is going to have to come from grassroots. So I think it's going to start with the sort of public outrage that we've already seen a little bit around Me Too, but that sort of gaining speed and a number of different things perhaps converging. It's got to start there. Um, if you combine that with an increase in data and transparency and things we know about companies and how they operate and how they do on pay and progression, etc., that could lead to more critical consumer choice, shareholders becoming more active about the companies they do and don't want to um, invest in. And then finally, of course, you come back to the companies. So I think today, a lot of companies still care about the stuff primarily, and maybe this is cynical of me, for PR reasons, uh, and perhaps for, for risk management, because they don't want unequal pay claims, etc. I think if you want the best people in leadership, you should look at the whole pool, changing how you progress people, how you assess people, and ensuring that not just women, but that your whole entry-level talent pool has access to the same sort of opportunities to climb the ladder. Well, let's imagine we do get there, whether it's in 50 years or longer than that. What does it mean for the world of business in general? What I think we can say quite confidently is that if this scenario indeed plays out, you're not just looking at a more gender-balanced workforce, you're looking at a more diverse workforce. And we've known for years, I mean, tons of studies have now shown that diversity in senior leadership leads to better business results, leads to more innovation, leads to more successful companies. So finally, then, on your 50-50 pledge and the idea that this might be adopted in Davos in 2019, you've put that idea out there. Do you think that's going to really happen now? A few years ago, I probably would have said no. Now I'm very quietly 
hopeful. Um, there are so many tailwinds at the moment, and you, you could see them leading to enough pressure on business leaders to to make this type of commitment. So let, let's wait and see. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks. When do you think we'll arrive at a future where 50% of CEOs are women? Let us know what you think by email to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And now, having looked backwards from 2069, we've returned to 2018, and we can look into the not-too-distant future and a world where drones are being used to police the oceans. Proponents of aquatic drones think they could reduce lawless behaviour from illegal fishing to human trafficking. To learn more, I'm joined by Hal Hodson, the Economist science and technology correspondent. Hello, Hal. Hi, Tom. When most people think of drones, they probably think of insect-like quadcopters. So what does an aquatic drone look like? There's actually more diversity in aquatic drones than in flying drones. You can have kind of torpedo-shaped things with fins that can sort of go up and down in a sine wave through the water, and those are very energy efficient. You can have just straight-up torpedoes that blast themselves around using propulsion. You can also have glider-shaped things that look like stingrays that do a similar sort of thing but are very, very energy efficient and can stay out for a very long period of time. So there's really a panoply of different options. And what sorts of things are these drones used for at the moment then? Currently, it's mostly in the realm of ocean science. This means things like tracking schools of fish, doing sort of weather monitoring experiments, and even stuff like monitoring the bottom of the ocean for kind of geological activity. But we're just starting to get to the realm where there are commercial applications. And those are starting in fishing, but even things like monitoring how um, big fish farms in the open ocean are performing. And are these drones genuinely autonomous? They go out and do their thing or are they actually remote controlled a lot of the time? What's the sort of balance there? Well, they tend to be following sort of waypoints. So usually what will happen is a human will set the path in terms of depth and in terms of the direction that they want to go. But then the drones tend to navigate it themselves. It's actually a little bit less complicated than aerial drones because there's just less going on in the middle of the ocean. OK, so we've got this idea then that there's quite a wide variety of, of swimming robots, if you like. So how might you use them not just for ocean science, but to reduce lawlessness at sea? Well, so in particular, you can watch for fishing activity that is outside of the regulations of the sort of economic area that those fleets are operating in. The drones are quite good at scanning uh, schools of fish and seeing how big they are. And if those are smaller than they're supposed to be, you can sort of infer illegal fishing. Drones can also help to monitor the entrances to various harbours and national security concerns to look for, I don't know, it could be a scuba diver swimming in, sort of try and plant some sort of bugging device, or it could be something as serious as a mine. And drones are much better at that because they could just stay in the water the whole time and they don't necessarily need any kind of humor operation. The reason that drones are so useful, especially in the open ocean, is because they don't require any humans to operate them. And having humans on a boat doing anything, whether it's inspecting oil and gas platforms, trying to do policing, is incredibly expensive on the order of sort of 100,000 per day to run a big research vessel. And this means that for things like human trafficking in the open ocean, where two boats might meet to transfer essentially slaves, drones are particularly useful for monitoring that kind of thing. And they're also useful for illegal fishing that goes on sort of over the horizon, outside the view of the Coast Guard. You can send a drone out in a way that is much cheaper and more efficient than sending any kind of human boat out. And why can't you just use satellites for this? Why use drones? 
Well, I mean, you can use satellites, but there's a few problems with that. The first is that satellites don't cover all of the Earth all the time. You've only got a specific window every day in which you can actually look at any particular bit of the ocean. And the second bit is that it's actually difficult to see what's going on. Drones are much better at what you might call contact, where you get into close proximity with the sort of bad goings on. And so while the satellites can sort of give you indications as to what's going on, you need drones or humans on boats that are much more expensive to figure out what's really happening and whether this is actually illegal activity in many cases. And are there examples of this sort of thing going on right now? So we don't currently have drones policing the open ocean. We do have organizations like one called SkyTruth, which uses satellite imagery to alert various NGOs when illegal fishing is going on, at least when they think it is. So they'll tip off an organization called Sea Shepherd, which is a fairly controversial American conservation group that will then dispatch ships to go and check this out and see if anything is going wrong or going on at all. And you could totally imagine drones being integrated into that same kind of flow, either as the sort of a original source of the information or as the thing that gets dispatched by Sea Shepherd or a similar group. Another thing that drones are very useful for is sort of environmental monitoring of other in-ocean activities. So next year, Deme Group, which is a Belgian dredging company, is going to send its second-generation seabed miner to the um, Clarion Clipperton zone, which is where there's a large number of magnesium nodules on the surface of the seafloor. They're going to have drones from a variety of environmental groups following their dredger around, taking lots and lots of readings to make sure that they're not spewing up too much silt that's going to clog up the antennas of various weird life forms on the seafloor. So they're useful for that as well. Won't all this be rather expensive? Well, it is currently expensive, but that's because most of the drones out there are pretty much prototypes. I think that when you look at what they're made from, there's nothing particularly complicated or special in there. It's just commodity electronics. And so when you start to produce these at scale and companies like SailDrone are doing this, you can see that the costs come down. Also, when you think about the kinds of efficiencies that having this sort of drone surveillance of the seas out there makes for the authorities, you can see that they're going to save money on that end. So even the costs of the drones themselves should be brought, got back by how much easier it makes policing the sea. But isn't there a problem that if the drones are really good at spotting bad activity, but we are not putting any more money into enforcement, then we're not going to make any progress? Well, to some extent, yes. But the real problem is not that enforcement doesn't want to do anything. It's that it can't. Oftentimes, they know sort of on average that lots of bad things are happening there in the ocean. The problem is finding anyone as they do it and finding them in a sort of quick enough way that they can go and stop it from happening. And that's where drones come in and you can see them being very helpful. So you can totally imagine that by 2030, there will be large numbers of drones in the sea doing various policing activities and helping to stop various kinds of bad behaviour. Thanks, Hal. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can find more about these stories at economist.com slash worldif. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist.